I'm reminded from Esther's life, a very, very important principle that while you cannot determine what you have received, you can determine what you've done with what you've received. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a series of special messages before beginning an in-depth study in one particular book of the Bible. Yesterday, we began a look at the life of Esther. This fascinating account tells of the faith one woman had in God's promise to care for the nation Israel. An evil man by the name of Haman sought the destruction of all the Israelites living in the Medo-Persian Empire. By God's providence and through a series of circumstances, Esther, a Jewess, had become queen. Nevertheless, it was policy that unless one was summoned by the king, they risked their life by coming into the chambers uninvited. Yet hearing of Haman's plot, Esther's cousin Mordecai urges her to approach the king in defense of the Israelites. We're picking up in chapter 4 where a relatively unknown eunuch by the name of Hetach is dispatched by Esther to get the details of Haman's plot from her cousin. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he notes how it is that God so often uses the relatively unknown to do great works. Most of God's work in this world is done through simple, ordinary people wherever you go in the world. And you see that pattern all the way through Scripture. Obscure people. People who don't even know their name. I mean, what was the name of the boy who gave Jesus his loaves and his fish? What were the names of the men who rescued the Apostle Paul and saved his life as they lowered him down in a basket over the wall there in the city of Damascus? What was the name of the little girl that told Naaman to go see Elisha in order to be healed? We don't know. But God accomplished his purposes through these obscure people. Like a great door that moves on small hinges, most of God's work in this world is done not through famous, not through well-known people, but just ordinary, everyday people like you and me. And so Hattach brings Esther a copy of the king's edict that Haman had written. Watch how this unfolds beginning here in chapter 4 in verse 7. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with her for her people. So Mordecai is asking Esther to reveal her true identity and to go into the royal throne room to plead with him, the king, for her people. Notice how she responds here in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to the king for these 30 days. 
Now, please know, we will see it in a moment. This is not an excuse, but it is a plea to Uncle Mordecai for guidance. Yes, she's afraid. And most of the time, both fear and courage live in the same heart. They go hand in hand. But she's asking for a sense of reassurance. She's asking for a sense of direction. And in a moment, we're going to see a tremendous step of courage that this woman takes. Now, I want us to examine three component parts of moral courage that I believe the Spirit of God wants to build into your life and into my life so that we can stand firm in these last days. Morally weak societies do not produce strong leaders. And we live in a morally weak society. And if it continues long enough, both history and the Bible documents that the society will crumble. When Abak Now, when President Obama, Barack Obama, when the president ran, he said that marriage was between a man and a woman, period. In the course of the next four years, on a Sunday morning, many of you watched the interview. It was burned into my skull. I watched it, of course, after the fact I was here where I needed to be. But, of course, the vice president-elect, as he's being called was being interviewed on a Sunday morning talk show, and he was asked, you can watch it online, what is your view of marriage? And Joseph Biden said, I believe gay marriage ought to be legal. I think that if two people love each other, whether they're male or female, the same gender, it ought to be legal. And that put President Obama into a corner. And within one week, he came out, and affirm the same truth. There was a time when Joseph Biden believed in the Hyde Amendment, that the federal government should not use your tax dollars to kill little babies. He says in the first hundred days, he said in the first day of office, he will rescind the Hyde Amendment by presidential executive order. We live in a morally decadent society. And please understand, I am not saying that the Republicans by nature are all virtuous people. But when you read the platform of one party and the platform of the other, it's two worldviews that are colliding. And whether it's by conviction or whether they're just being salted or whether they just want to be morally correct in order to get the evangelical vote and other people who have a certain basis of morals, we have here two different visions that are colliding. It has very little to do with Republican and Democrat It has everything to do with two worldviews that are colliding. And let me just say to you, one of the scariest things is that we are now raising a generation of young people who are morally degenerate. And let me say to anyone listening, if you're homosexual, if you're a lesbian, if you're an adulterer, and if you're a fornicator, and by the way, it's heterosexual immorality that Romans 1 teaches will open and pave the way for, heterosexual, for homosexual perversion. But if you're a drunk, a homosexual, a drug addict, an adulterer, or fornicator, I don't care what you are, God can forgive you. But you must say what God says about your sin and come to faith in Christ, and he will make you a brand new person on the inside. Listen, we need people who have some moral strength and fabric. 
Now that's all by way of introduction. Some of you are saying, when's he going to get to the outline? We're coming to it now, all right? So there are three components of moral courage that I want us to examine. First, the intellectual component to moral courage, the intellectual component. I want you to note first that having moral courage, being able to stand firmly has an intellectual component to it. That moral courage is not based on ignorance, it's based on intelligence. It's not a matter of an individual rushing into a building that's on fire only to find out that no one's in the building. No, it's based on intelligence, and the intelligence needs to be based on the revelation of Scripture. God doesn't build moral courage in a vacuum. He builds it with truth. And Esther is a person who had significant input by her uncle who taught her the Scriptures. Turn back for a moment to chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2 and verse 20. I want you to see something. We're told in chapter 2 and verse 20, Esther had not yet made known her kindred, that she's Jewish, or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Repeatedly in this book, we are told that Mordecai instructs Esther. He raised her, the text says, his own daughter. And verse 20 tells us that she did exactly what Mordecai said. Why is that? Now understand that Mordecai's instruction is informed by the Jewish culture, and the Jewish culture is informed by the Bible. And on every Sabbath for nearly 4,000 years, there's a text of Scripture that is read by every Jew across the world. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And we affirm that as Christians. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal co-eternal persons. And by the way, what follows, Jesus said, is the greatest of all the commandments. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, here's the intelligence, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now understand, that's the parent's responsibility that Moses gives, that you're to raise your children up under the word of God. Esther 2.20, it is a very simple statement, but it's not a simplistic statement. It's simple, but it's not superficial. It is based on the Shema. It is based on the revelation of God. So here's Mordecai. He recognizes this is my own flesh and blood. God has entrusted this responsibility to me. And so he serves her like he were her daddy. And by the way, dads and moms, this is our responsibility. We are to train up our children. Now, with that statement, and the statements like it that are repeatedly used throughout this book, there are two truths that I learned. First, I learned something about the quality of Esther's training. The quality of Esther's training. You see, Esther was both a disadvantaged person and an advantaged person. She was handicapped by the very fact that she was an orphan. Her parents had died, and so Mordecai, of course, is raising her. That potentially was a great disadvantage, especially in that day. But not only had she been orphaned, she was a member of a despised, hated minority. Jews were hated in that day as they are hated in our day, as they have been hated in every generation. 
Why were they hated in Esther's day? Because they represented the Lord God. They stood out as different in the midst of a pagan, immoral, idolatrous society. And so I'm reminded from Esther's life, a very, very important principle that while you cannot determine what you have received, you can determine what you've done with what you've received. In other words, you can respond to whatever circumstances you may find yourself in. This is very, very important. There are some things that you have absolutely no control over in this life. And the culture would tell you that you are a victim, that you are crippled for the rest of your life. The fact that you were raised in a pagan home, you had no control over that. The fact that maybe your parents divorced each other when you were just a small child, you had no control over that. The fact that your mother was a drunk, the fact that your father may have molested you, these are things you cannot change. And yet everything in our culture would paint a victimized kind of mentality that you are wounded for life. But the Christian is to have a different perspective. The Christian recognizes if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old life has passed away, and everything has become new. We are recipients of the new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of, where God can take a heart of stone and he can turn it into a heart of flesh. The Spirit of God is placed within us. And so Paul can say to the church at Philippi, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you've been saved, God Almighty is at work within you. And God loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you the way he found you when he saved you. And so Paul can say this in the fourth chapter, I can do all things, not some things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we have no excuse to wallow in our hardships. I met someone recently who came to our church, they are a new Christian, and when I learned of their background, I thought, my, what a home this individual was raised in. But he said to me, Pastor, I want to know how I can be different, how I can break the cycle in my family now that I am a new Christian. That was so refreshing to me. This was not some victim-oriented brother in Christ. Here's a guy who had an entirely different perspective in life. And again, while you cannot determine what you have received, you can determine how you respond. You may not be able to change your past, but you can respond differently based on the revelation of Scripture. And that determination is based on what the Word of God says, and that's what we need to be asking. What does the Scripture say? What are the promises of God? How does God want me to think about myself? How does God want me to think about the future? And how can I take these principles and apply them to life? And so here's Esther. And on the one hand, she's a disadvantaged person. On the other hand, she's a greatly advantaged person. She has the distinct advantage of being discipled by Uncle Mordecai. And disciple is one of the most exciting processes that you can get engaged in. It's the process of building into another person's life. And so here's Mordecai. He thinks, Esther, she's my own flesh and blood. She was not his daughter, but he took responsibility for her. And if he could do that for his first cousin, what should we be doing for our own children? I find two extremes today in the way a lot of people think about the whole process of discipleship. On the one hand, you've got these people who are running to this Bible study and that Bible study and this discipleship group and that discipleship group, all in the name of the Great Commission. But in the process, they have failed to build the precious little ones that God has entrusted to them. The people in their own home. 
And listen, there's not a born-again father or mother who cannot do what Mordecai did for Esther. God never commands you to do something, and then he doesn't give you the power or the ability to pull it off. And over the years, I've seen Christian pastors, I've seen Christian Sunday school teachers, adult Bible fellowship leaders, who are out there trying to have an impact on the world, and all the while their own children are going to pots. That's why when God looks for leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 3, he says one of the first things you look for is not how famous the person is, not how much money they have, not how many degrees they have after their name, but what is their family like? Because if a man can't make it work in his family, he is disqualified for leadership in the church. If you can't make it work in your home, don't bring it into the church. And so your credibility to disciple those on the outside begins with how you handle those who are on the inside. Inside. On the other hand, there are parents who are constantly running to the church, people who visit here, and they ask, well, what do you have for my children? What do you have for my kids? That's the wrong question. That's not what they should be asking if they were wise and perceptive. They should be asking, does this church open the Bible up to me, to me as a dad, to me as a mom, so that I in turn can teach my children? You see, the role of the church is to disciple the parents so the parents can go home and teach the children. I am a pastor this morning, and I am discipling you. How am I discipling you? I am opening up the Word of God. And as you grow and apply what you know, you mature, your spiritual gifts begin to manifest one another, and together we are discipling each other. We are growing to the maturity that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Look, I did not have the advantage of growing up in a home where the Bible was open to me and I was being taught on a daily basis from the Scripture. But that doesn't matter. You can become a part of a local church. And by the way, that's why membership is important in the New Testament. That's why the local church is important to God. And one function of the local church is for me as a pastor to instruct you so you in turn can go home and teach your children. And in that respect, COVID's been a good thing. Because for some of us, we've become so dependent on Awana and Sunday school and kids' choirs and all these incredible children's ministries that God has blessed us with. And some of us are realizing that we've let the church do what we need to be doing as dads and moms. Now here's Mordecai. He disciples Queen Esther like she was his own daughter. And with that said, let me ask you a question. Who was greater, D.L. Moody or Edward Kimball, who led him to Christ and discipled him as a new Christian? Who was greater, John and Charles Wesley or Sarah Wesley, who opened up the scriptures to those young men on a daily basis? Listen, I learned from this passage something about the quality of Esther's training. Secondly, I learned something about the quality of Esther's commitment, the quality of her commitment. Look now at chapter 2 and again in verse 20. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Esther was a woman who was personally influenced and driven by the truth. She responded to what she knew. She did, the text says, what Mordecai taught her. The truth became her own. This was not secondhand. You see, the danger to being a disadvantaged person is the danger of being cynical of living in despair, of living with a sense of hopelessness. But the danger of being an advantaged person where you grow up in a Christian home is you become immunized to the truth. A famous book written by Chad Walsh 
was entitled Christians of the 21st Century. He wrote it in the 20th century. But he wrote these words, millions of Christians live in a sentimental haze of vague piety with soft organ music trembling in the lovely light from stained glass windows. Their religion is a pleasant thing of emotional quivers. Divorced from the will, divorced from the intellect, in demanding little except lip service to a few harmless platitudes. I suspect that Satan has called off his attempt to convert people to agnosticism. After all, if a man travels far enough away from Christianity, he is liable to see it in perspective and decide that it's true. It is much safer from Satan's point of view to vaccinate a man with a mild case of Christianity so as to protect him from the real disease. And it is my observation that this can often happen in Christian homes where the Bible is taught and that parents may know enough to be saved, but they're not gripped by what they know. They just jump through the hoops because they know this is what they're supposed to do as a parent. And what happens when you're that kind of a parent is you typically raise apathetic children. They often remain babes in Christ. And so these parents who spend more time in front of the television than they do taking the scriptures and pouring over it and making it their own are unable to impact the next generation. Or sometimes they, they may have a lot of knowledge and they learned, have learned a lot, but they're not high in their obedience. And when you're that kind of a dad or mom, you will typically raise either children who will apostatize from the faith, or at best they will be Christians, but they will be lukewarm and sour, and they will lose the next generation. And so we need to ask ourselves, is my heart so radically changed by Jesus Christ that I am not giving my children a mild case of Christianity so as to inoculate them from the real disease? Listen, unfortunately, it often takes a crisis sent from heaven to get the attention of a father or a mother. And in the American church, we suffer either from pulpits that don't even open up the Bible, all these pastors who want to be cool, they have become much like the world. They they talk about all these R-rated movies they've seen. They become the sermon illustrations. Their mind is polluted with trash. They've got the windows darkened out. They've got all this smoke and this drama and all these lights going on. We're either in that extreme or we have some church churches where people's heads are filled with knowledge, but they are not gripped with the truth that they are hearing. Why? Because the pastor himself is not gripped by it. And so they have kind of a whole home Christian experience. And so children see these parents who are more excited about their football team than they are getting up on Sunday morning to worship the living God. Parents who are more in tune with their favorite TV show than they are with reaching their lost friends for Christ. And if your children does not, do not see a vital relationship And if they do not see answered prayer in your home, God moving in your heart, your concern and your compassion for those who have never met Jesus Christ, then you will raise a generation of either lost or apathetic people. Now, that's the intellectual component to moral courage, but there's an emotional component to moral courage. Roman numeral two in your outline. You see, one of the characteristics of a culture that is morally rotting is apathy. It's self-centered. And people who are self-centered, they are only interested in their personal peace and prosperity. Apathetic people, so-called Christians, who are not really excited by the truth. They're not moved by it. 
They take the information in week after week and they yawn when it's all over. They look at their watches. They wonder, when is this thing going to get over? He's been preaching for an hour, but they can sit there and they can watch their ball game for two and a half hours. What's important to you this morning? You see, your knowledge is to impact you and to stir your heart even emotionally. Jesus said this in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me and he who loves me shall be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. You see, when you obey what you know, you grow. The God of the universe who created a hundred billion galaxies begins to disclose himself to you. He makes himself known to you. And that's motivating, that's pulsating, that's life-changing, that the living God is working in your heart. Is that happening to you today? Or are you simply apathetic? Well, the answer of how to get excited over God is revealed here in chapter 4. And there are two key truths I don't want you to miss. First, Esther knew the value of life. Esther knew the value of life. Esther had already said in chapter 4 and verse 11, well, if I go into the king, he might have me killed. And so Mordecai responds to her plea in verse 13, and don't miss this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you are in the king's palace. Uh, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. What's he doing? Mordecai is trying to put spiritual steel in Esther's spine. Mordecai knows that she is frightened. He knows that she is in a spiritual battle. Satan could easily bring into her mind what happened to Queen Vasti, and it might have paralyzed her. He knows that what she is going to do is a far worse violation of protocol than what even Queen Vasti did. She is going to go into the presence of the king unannounced, unwelcomed, uninvited. And of course, that would typically mean death. So I want you to notice how Mordecai appeals to the truth to stir her on three levels. First, we read here in verse 13, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Now, when you come to chapter 8, it's very clear that the edict that Haman writes affects every single Jew wherever you live in the Persian Empire. Whether you live in Susa, the capital, or back in Jerusalem, clearly Esther 8.2 indicates that all 127 provinces are going to be impacted from India all the way to Ethiopia. So first, Mordecai reminds Esther that being a resident of the palace does not guarantee that she is going to be delivered from death. Haman is going to find out you're a Jew. That's what he's saying in essence. And when he finds out you are a Jew, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you must be exec executed. Again, verse 14, Mordecai says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. So secondly, Mordecai wants Esther to know that the Jewish race is going to survive. How does he know that? Because God made an unconditional unilateral covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. 
You cannot destroy the Jewish people. The church has not replaced Israel. God is going to culminate history through Israel. You cannot wipe them out because God's going to bring the Messiah through Israel. And Mordecai knows that. He knows that his people cannot be annihilated. And in essence, he's saying, look, God promised to bring the Messiah through us, the Hebrew people. And if God doesn't use you, Esther, then he's going to use someone else. And so then he adds here in verse 14, and who knows? whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. That's his third reason that he gives her for responding. Look, Esther, God is sovereign. God is in control. And if you're not willing to get involved and to pay the price, God will get the job done. He just won't use you. He'll use someone else. Next week, we'll conclude our look at Esther and the message, Standing Firm in Difficult Days. To listen again to this program, use the Search the Scriptures app, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or website, or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, the conclusion of Standing Firm in Difficult Days. Join us then as we search the scriptures. (music) 